Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we saw how Denmark was rocked first by Christian II trying to reclaim his crown, and then, after he failed and was locked up, his uncle Frederick I died and left the field open for a fight over the crown between the locked-up ex-King Christian and Frederick's son, who was also called Christian, because of course he was. To make things a little easier to understand, the whole civil war was named the Count's Feud after Christian II's second cousin, Count Christopher. The fighting of the crown was overlaid and combined with increasing tensions between Catholics and Protestants in Denmark. The old order preferred to remain Catholic, and they didn't want either of the Christians as the next king of Denmark, preferring instead Frederick I's youngest son, John, to take over his father's job. But a ferocious peasant rebellion that threatened the social order in Jutland scared the Catholic nobility into accepting the enthusiastic Lutheran Duke Christian as the next king as long as he could suppress the irate peasants and put them back in their place. Christian III did all that and more. Today, we'll talk about how he validated the fears of his Catholic opponents and imposed Lutheranism on his new kingdom. Episode 73, Reformation. Before we start talking about how the Lutheran Reformation reached Denmark, we should probably say a few words about what the Reformation was. But don't worry, I will only say a few words. A, because this isn't the History of Christianity podcast, and B, I'm not qualified to pontificate at any length on this particular topic. But very briefly, here and there, various intellectuals had expressed concern about the state of the church in the late Middle Ages, and people had suggested tweaks to a system that sometimes seemed dysfunctional and rife with corruption. But the Reformation is conventionally considered to have started when an Augustinian friar named Martin Luther, active in the German city of Wittenberg, nailed his 95 theses to a church door in 1517. In this handy format, he summarized all the things he thought were wrong with the Catholic Church, focusing on both theology and corruption. The higher-ups in the church hierarchy didn't take kindly to Luther's very public criticism, which was seen as undermining papal authority and their own privileges and incomes. They tried to shut the critical friar up, but Luther continued to criticize the church in his sermons and texts. Things came to a head in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, where the great and the good of the Holy Roman Empire were gathered. Martin Luther had been summoned and the emperor expected him to recant his criticism and apologize. But Luther stood his ground and insisted on the urgent need of reform within the church. This led Pope Leo X to excommunicate him and the emperor to issue the Edict of Worms, forbidding anyone from spreading or defending Luther's ideas. Martin Luther himself was declared an outlaw, but survived thanks to the assistance of the Elector of Saxony, Frederick III, who had been convinced by the reformer and his message. It's easy to suspect that one of the things that convinced the Elector of Saxony to embrace Lutheranism was Martin Luther's idea that the secular government should have authority over the church, and especially its property. This bit of Luther's reform agenda was appealing to many princes in Europe, not least since the Middle Ages had seen its fair share of power struggles between church and crown in many countries. People with more theological interests tend to stress other aspects of Martin Luther's message. From a theological perspective, 
Luther's criticism can roughly be said to focus on two things, the source of authority and the doctrine of justification. Luther and his followers claimed and continue to claim that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of scripture alone. This goes against the Catholic belief that both faith and good works can lead to salvation, and that the authority stems from both scripture and tradition. There are a bunch of other differences as well, largely stemming from the new theological ideas, such as the Lutheran rejection of the belief in transubstantiation, papal supremacy, and infallibility, as well as many other things that we won't get into here. It only took a few years for Luther's ideas to reach Denmark. In 1525, a knight's hospitaller called Hans Tausen from a monastery in Zealand began preaching a Lutheran message in the city of Viborg in Jutland. When Hans Tausen, sometimes called the Luther of Denmark, had studied in Germany, he'd met the real Martin Luther and the young Danish monk had been captivated by the reformer, who undeniably must have had a lot of charisma. When the people at his monastery caught wind of what Hans Tausen was preaching, they were thoroughly scandalized and they threw him out of their order. But Hans continued to preach in Viborg, winning ever more adherents. Lutheranism spread quickly from town to town in Denmark. And that's not merely a turn of phrase. The Lutheran message tended to be most popular among the townspeople, the burghers, the merchants, that is, the budding middle classes, especially those with a bit of education under their belt. At the time, Frederick I was still king of Denmark, and in the charter he had signed when he became king, remember he had to sign away so much of his power to the Council of the Realm that he was called the prisoner of the nobility. He had promised to counteract Lutheranism. Nonetheless, he did little to stop the spread of this new idea, and in 1526 he even sent a letter to the burghers of Viborg ordering them to protect Hans Tausen from people who didn't like his Lutheran activities. This unwillingness to clamp down on Lutheranism emboldened the people in Denmark not only to adopt the new religion, but even to attack monasteries and churches in some cases. It was against this backdrop that the Danish Council of the Realm, urged on by the Catholic bishops, decided it was so important that young Prince John, who was a Catholic, succeed his father Frederick when he died in 1533. But, as we covered last time, John was too young to take over, so the election was postponed, and in the meantime the proverbial manure hit the equally proverbial fan. At the same meeting where it was decided to postpone the election of a new king, Hans Tausen was accused of heresy and exiled from Zealand. In January the following year, the city of Malmö refused to deport some Lutheran preachers active in the city, and thereafter the Lutheran protests spread across the country, followed by Count Christopher's invasion in May. The invasion and uprising among peasants in Jutland led the Council of the Realm to back the Lutheran Duke, Christian, Prince John's half-brother, as king. The ensuing civil war ended with Duke Christian, now upgraded to King Christian III, winning and becoming king of Denmark in 1536. If all that sounds vaguely familiar, that's because we covered it at length last time. Christian III entered Copenhagen on August 6th, 1536, after the city had been besieged for almost a whole year. Six days after he took control, it was his 33rd birthday, and he could celebrate it by carrying out a little coup. He arrested the bishops and threw them in jail. The official justification was that they had been against Christian becoming king. And I'm sure their opposition to his elevation annoyed him, but that was hardly the only reason Christian III had imprisoned all the top brass of the Catholic Church in Denmark. He was going to introduce the Lutheran Reformation in his new kingdom, and that would be much easier if the leading Catholics were all locked up and under his control. 
As we covered last time, the Danish high nobility wasn't particularly keen on this arresting bishops business, and they forced the king to release the clerics. But they did allow the king to fire all the bishops, and to keep all the land belonging to the bishoprics. It was also decided that no future bishops would be allowed to wield any secular power in the kingdom. None of this should have come as a huge surprise for anyone who'd followed Christian's career. In 1521, he'd attended that diet at Worms, where Martin Luther had been condemned as a heretic by the Holy Roman Emperor. Unlike the Emperor, young Christian had been really impressed by Martin Luther, and had been convinced by his message that the church needed to be reformed and yield to the secular authorities. Later, in the mid-1520s, when he was still only a duke, he had established a priest seminar in the town of Hadreslev, and introduced a Lutheran church order in the lands he controlled. In 1528, he'd also introduced the so-called Hadreslev Articles, which set out the rules for the new and reformed church in Schleswig. As king, Christian III started to scale up his Lutheran project to include all of Denmark. He wanted the church in Denmark to preach a Lutheran message and be independent from Rome, but completely dependent on him instead. The work on a new church order was started at a meeting in Odense in 1537, and later continued at the Lutheran priest seminary back in Harderslev in Schleswig. Johannes Bugenhagen, a friend of Martin Luther, came to Denmark to help the Danes to write this new church order and to guide the reformation of the church in Denmark. That same year, the University of Copenhagen, which had been closed because of the Count's feud, was reopened, but only after Johannes Bugenhagen had transformed it into a Lutheran university modeled after the one in Wittenberg, the epicenter of the Lutheran Reformation. Bugenhagen was no doubt busy developing a new church order and reopening the university, but he still found time in his busy schedule to crown Christian III and his wife Dorothea in the first ever Lutheran coronation in Scandinavia on August 12, 1537. That happened to be both the king's 34th birthday and, consequently, the first anniversary of the arrest of the Danish bishops. A few weeks later, in September, Johannes Bugenhagen also inaugurated the seven new Lutheran bishops in Denmark at a ceremony in Copenhagen. Since Bugenhagen hadn't actually been a Catholic bishop before the Reformation, that meant that the so-called line of the apostolic succession, meaning the tradition that every bishop has been made a bishop by someone who in turn was made a bishop by a previous bishop all the way back to St. Peter, was now broken in Denmark. These new Danish bishops had a drastically reduced power than their predecessors. To begin with, they weren't even called bishops, but superintendents. But that rather anemic title was soon scrapped, and they were called bishops again. Still, they were appointed by the king, not the church itself, and they weren't allowed to earn any major income or hold secular political offices. They were to meet in synods, chaired by the king, even though the monarch wasn't supposed to have any authority to interfere in theological matters. This strict division wouldn't be upheld though, and going forward Danish history will still offer examples of bishops with high incomes and political power, as well as royal interference in matters of faith. When the new church order was ready, it was sent off to Germany for Martin Luther's approval, which it received. More importantly, after it had been translated from Latin into Danish, it was also approved by the Danish Council of the Realm and turned into law in 1539. The Lutheran Reformation was now officially complete in Denmark. All priests were now expected to preach the Lutheran message, and services were to be held in Danish, not Latin. Children were instructed in Christianity according to the new Lutheran Catechism, and everything that was considered 
papist nonsense, such as the veneration of saints, fast days, priestly celibacy, masses for the dead, and a bunch of other things, were scrapped. In 1550, a translation of the Bible into Danish, known as the Christian III Bible, was printed and distributed in the kingdom. This not only facilitated the dissemination of the message of the good book, but it also helped establish a standard of Danish grammar and spelling, which turned out to be beneficial for the development of the Danish language. Perhaps surprisingly, most monks and nuns were allowed to remain in their monasteries and convents. Only when the last inhabitant of one of these institutions died did the crown confiscate the property. That way, there was no dramatic or violent dissolution of the monasteries in Denmark, and the introduction of Lutheranism was, on the whole, a relatively peaceful process. That was not, however, the case in other places under Christian III's control. In Norway and Iceland, the enthusiasm for Lutheran Reformation was much more limited, and the royal authorities felt much less obliged to tread carefully when introducing it against the will of the locals. Unlike in Denmark, there was no significant support for the Lutheran reforms in Norway before Christian III decided to introduce the new religion from above. We can speculate about why, and if we do, the remote location and the rather insignificant urban development may be the most obvious explanations. As I've already mentioned, Lutheranism first tended to appeal mostly to the city-dwelling middle class, and there wasn't too much of that around in Norway. In the early 16th century, the church was by far the most powerful organization in Norway. The archbishop in Trondheim ruled over 11 dioceses, five on the mainland and another six on the various islands that had once been Norwegian possessions. One bishop each in Greenland, the Orkney, Faroe and Shetland Islands, and two bishops in Iceland. The church was also the largest Norwegian landowner, and almost half of all the farmland in the country belonged to the church. Since there hadn't been a king in Norway for many years by now, the archbishop was also the most senior political figure in the kingdom, and he was the head of the Norwegian Council of the Realm. Last time, we talked about the last Catholic archbishop of Norway, who had been so worried about the spread of Lutheranism that he had started a rebellion against continued Danish rule in Norway. After Christian III emerged victorious from the count's feud and started to introduce Lutheranism in Denmark, the archbishop made his move. As I mentioned last time, he hoped that the Catholic Holy Roman Emperor would support Norway, but no such support materialized. When the archbishop understood that the jig was up, he fled the country. On April 1st, 1537, the archbishop boarded a ship in Trondheim and sailed off, never to return. When the rebellion had been crushed and the archbishop had left, the Lutheran Reformation was forced on the Norwegian population. Lutheranism was declared the official religion in the country, and any and all priests who remained Catholic were harassed and persecuted. But on the other hand, clerics who were willing to switch allegiance and become Lutherans were allowed to keep their jobs. But unlike in Denmark, where the monks had been allowed to live out their lives in peace, the monastic orders in Norway were suppressed, and anyone caught practicing old Catholic customs could be punished harshly for what was now considered heresy. The crown also seized all church property. That wasn't limited to church land, but also included inventories from many churches, which were more or less plundered. Some were even destroyed. Many statues and images of saints were destroyed, since the veneration of saints was now considered heresy. Many archives and libraries were also damaged, meaning that a treasure trove of information about the Middle Ages in Norway was lost forever. 
The most important Catholic relic in Norway was the St. Olaf's reliquary. Before he left, the fleeing archbishop had left it at Steinviksholm's castle on an island in the Trondheim fjord. It contained the bones of St. Olaf, arguably the most important Scandinavian saint. And generations of medieval Scandinavians had made the pilgrimage to Trondheim, where St. Olaf's bones were kept behind the high altar in the cathedral. For hundreds of years, this reliquary had been the prized possession of the church in Norway, a symbol of immense value, both from a religious and a national perspective. But despite its importance, or perhaps because of it, St. Olaf's reliquary didn't survive the Reformation. The Danish authorities destroyed the box itself and had the remains of the sainted king buried in a secret location so that any future veneration at the gravesite wouldn't be possible. Even though the authorities did their very best to stamp out Catholicism in Norway, it would take generations for the old religion to disappear completely. A lot of people were appalled by the forced introduction of the Reformation, and there were violent protests in several locations, even including the killing of Lutheran priests. Some Norwegians continued to practice Catholicism despite everything. There was a secret underground movement of Catholics, and some young Norwegians chose to study in Catholic countries, especially at Jesuit seminaries, which made sense since the Jesuits were among the leaders of the so-called Counter-Reformation, a movement aimed at doing just what it sounds like, counter the effects of the Lutheran Reformation. Some Norwegian priests who officially were Lutherans were secretly Catholic and served their closeted Catholic congregants as best they could. One of these was a man called Christopher Jut, who was found out and exiled in the early 17th century. Despite the increasingly harsh measures to snuff out any remaining Catholic beliefs and practices, including a law from 1624 making it a capital offense to be a Catholic monk, there are indications that some Norwegians clung to the old ways for up to 200 years after the country officially became Lutheran. A few of them continued to go on pilgrimages to sites that had been important religious venues before the Reformation, and apparently the practice didn't end completely before the middle of the 19th century. The introduction of Lutheranism in Iceland, another one of Christian III's domains, was also quite dramatic. First of all, a quick recap. Iceland had been independent, but in 1262 the Althing was forced to accept Norwegian control over the island. Then, when Norway was forced into union with Denmark, the Danish king became the king of Iceland as well. So there you have it, that's why the political and religious shift in Denmark affected Iceland. Despite the remote location of the island, Luther's message wasn't completely unknown in Iceland even before the Reformation. German fishermen sailed the waters off the coast of Iceland and Hanseatic merchants were active on the island. Some of these Germans were Lutherans and they had a Protestant church built in Hapnafjörður on the southwestern coast of Iceland already in 1533. Some of the better off Icelandic families also sent their sons to study on the continent, in Copenhagen or Hamburg for instance, and they had no doubt also come into contact with the Lutheran ideas. But we shouldn't overestimate any Lutheran inroads made in Iceland before the Danish authorities officially introduced the Reformation. Lutheranism was still a middle-class phenomenon, favoured by townspeople, and there weren't really any towns to speak of in Iceland, and consequently, precious few townspeople. The medieval urban development was even less impressive on this mid-Atlantic island than it was in mainland Scandinavia, and the vast majority of Icelanders were farmers and fishermen who lived on more or less isolated farms. There were two bishops in Iceland at the time, Bishop Ökmundur Paulsson in Skolholt and Jón Arason in Holar. 
When the royal decree about the new church ordinance that established the rules and regulations for the Lutheran church in Denmark reached Iceland, it was denounced. Bishop Ökmunder, the most important and influential bishop at the time, threatened to excommunicate anyone who accepted the German heresy, as he called it. But King Christian III wasn't going to accept that, obviously, and in 1539 he sent a new governor to Iceland with instructions to implement the Reformation and to seize the property belonging to the church in Iceland. The two Icelandic bishops weren't only religious authority figures, but, as was the case almost everywhere else in Catholic Europe, they were also important political figures. The two bishops actually hated each other's guts, but they were smart enough to realize that they needed to unite in the face of this new and serious threat of religious reform. The new Danish governor didn't waste any time, and together with a contingent of soldiers, he went to the monastery in Vithe, in southwestern Iceland, and declared that the whole place now belonged to the King of Denmark. This action provoked Bishop Ökmunder to make good on his threat and excommunicate the governor and all the others who had been involved. This didn't convince the governor to back down, though. On the contrary, later that summer, some soldiers were sent to Skolholt, where they roughed up the bishop to teach him to respect the king's men. But they had overestimated their own power of intimidation, or perhaps underestimated the Icelandic willingness to resist, because supporters of the bishop quickly gathered and killed them all. At that point, for a tantalizing moment, the Danish crown had lost control over the island, and Iceland was de facto independent again for the first time in almost 300 years. It wouldn't last, though. As soon as the weather allowed it, Christian III sent more soldiers to Iceland to put an end to the resistance to his religious reforms. In spring 1541, the soldiers from Denmark landed in Iceland and went straight for Bishop Ökmundur, the prime defender of Icelandic Catholicism. The bishop, who was old and frail, was arrested and shipped back to Denmark, and the soldiers re-established Danish control over the island. Bishop Ökmundur would never again see Iceland. He died in Danish prison the following year. When the old bishop had been packed off to Denmark, the reformers could get to work. A number of young Icelandic priests who had studied in Germany had been influenced by Lutheran ideas, but they had been forced to keep their reformist inclinations secret from the grand old man of Icelandic Christendom as long as he'd been around. But they hadn't been passive. For instance, one of them had been busy translating the New Testament into Icelandic in secret, hiding in a barn at the sea in Skolholt, so the elderly bishop wouldn't find out what he was up to. Now the secret translator could operate openly, and his translation was sent to Denmark, where it was printed in Roskilde, making it the oldest preserved text printed in Icelandic. Another of these young reformers was called Gissur Einarsson. He replaced the old and imprisoned Ökmundur Polson as bishop in Skolholt, and he now pushed for the introduction of Lutheran reforms in his diocese. But he ran into resistance at the grassroots level, since most Icelanders were happy with their religion and weren't interested in the new continental ideas. The diocese of Holar, beyond Gissur's reach, remained staunchly Catholic under the leadership of Ökmundur's old rival, Bishop Jón Arason. An uncomfortable stalemate ensued. For the time being, the Danish authorities didn't move against Bishop Jón Arason, so Iceland remained divided between Catholics and Protestants. Things only started to happen when the Lutheran bishop Gissur Einarsson died, and then it was the Catholic bishop Jón Arason who made the first move. He went on the offensive trying to turn back the clock on the hated reforms. At that point, he was the last remaining Catholic bishop in the Nordic countries, but he didn't care. He saw it as his mission to bring Catholicism back. 
He raised a force and rode off to Skalholt to organize the election of a new bishop, a proper Catholic bishop. But the people in Skalholt had anticipated this move, and when the entourage from Holar arrived, they were ready and waiting. The defenders had fortified their position and managed to keep the attackers out for five days. After that, Bishop Yon and his men lifted their siege and withdrew. But they hadn't given up. Even though Bishop Yon didn't actually manage to take control over Skalholt, he went about the business of electing a new bishop anyway. He picked an abbot called Sigvarter Hattlthorsson and sent him off to Denmark to be consecrated. All things considered, that's a gutsy move, and I'm not entirely sure how Bishop Yon could have thought the authorities in Denmark, be they religious or secular, would accept his chosen bishop. Maybe his faith was strong. Whatever the bishop thought would happen, this newly elected Catholic bishop was not accepted by the Lutheran Church or the King of Denmark. Sigvarter wasn't consecrated and he never even returned to Iceland, and instead he too died abroad not long afterward. But Skolholt still needed a new bishop, so the representatives for the Danish church found a reliably Lutheran Icelandic cleric who was hanging around in Copenhagen, and they inaugurated him as Bishop Gissur's replacement. This new Protestant bishop was then sent back to Iceland, where he arrived in 1549. But if the people in Copenhagen had thought Bishop Jón would just accept this turn of events, they had clearly underestimated his determination. When Jón realized what had happened, he sent his sons, yes, Catholic clerics in Iceland never took that celibacy thing too seriously, to arrest the new arrival. After his arrest, the new bishop was brought to Holar, where he was kept locked up. In the spring the following year, the indomitable Bishop Jón went to Skolholt, where he dug up Bishop Gissur's body, desecrated it, and officially declared him a heretic. Then, later in the summer, he went to the Althing, which was still convening every summer even though Iceland had lost its independence. At the Althing, he managed to convince a majority of the gathered Icelanders that they should re-adopt Catholicism. Then, he and his sons started to arrest leading Lutherans, who were forced to either become Catholics again or leave the island. The campaign was effective, and by the end of summer only a few churches in Iceland were still held by Lutherans. The reintroduction of Catholicism had been a fairly easy affair, and perhaps the bishop was getting overconfident, because as he rode off to deal the final blow to the Lutherans that fall, he only brought his sons and a smallish force of about 100 men with him. To begin with, they managed to take control over the church in Sørdafjall in western Iceland. But what they didn't know was that their opponents had gathered a force of their own in secret, and that this force was much better trained and equipped than the bishop's men. The Lutherans counterattacked in the early morning hours of October 2nd. They had escaped discovery by dressing in grey and approaching silently in the night fog. Thanks to their advantages in training and equipment, and having the element of surprise on their side, the Lutherans won the ensuing fight, described as the Battle at Sødafjall in Icelandic historiography. In the end, Bishop Jón was trapped in the church and was forced to surrender. He and his sons were taken to Skolholt, but the victorious Lutherans worried that there might still be Catholics out there planning to set the bishop free and continue the resistance. To make sure that didn't happen, they beheaded the bishop and his sons on November 7th, without bothering to go through the motions of a trial beforehand. The executions hadn't been carried out in a legal way, but the fears that had brought them on turned out to be well-founded. In January 1551, men loyal to the now-dead Catholic bishop attacked from the north, killing all the Danes who had taken control over Skalholt. So once again, Iceland had rid itself of Copenhagen's control, but just like last time, it was only temporary. 
In the spring of 1551, even before news of the execution of Bishop Jon had reached Denmark, the king sent four ships to Iceland to bring the bishop to Denmark to stand trial. That wasn't necessary anymore, but the soldiers on board came in handy anyway and were used to reassert Danish dominance over Iceland. Following the death of Bishop Jon Arason, the new church order was enforced in Iceland. Catholicism was made illegal and Catholic priests were forbidden from setting foot on the island. This ban would remain for more than 300 years. Many Icelanders who refused to convert eventually went into exile, mainly to Scotland, the closest realm where Catholics were still allowed. All church lands and other property were confiscated by the crown. Even though the bishops of Iceland were to be Lutheran from now on, their sees remained centers of education on the island. In Holar, there was also a printing press, which became important for the distribution of Lutheran texts in Icelandic. Some 100 books were printed there, and this activity was important in the standardization of the Icelandic language. Arguably, the most important of these books was the translation of the whole Bible into Icelandic, which was printed in 1584. 500 copies were made, which is a significant number considering how small the population actually was. Christian III would go on to reign over Denmark, Norway and Iceland for a quarter of a century. By the time he died, the Lutheran Reformation had been well established, and the new order was no longer under any real threat from a Catholic backlash. Christian didn't only put an end to Danish Catholicism, but to the Middle Ages in Denmark, at least as far as the conventional division of Danish history is concerned. Historians tend to place the medieval period between the introduction of Christianity and the Lutheran Reformation. That makes a lot of sense, especially since the religious shifts were also accompanied by political changes. The Christianization of Denmark was largely parallel to the establishment of the unified Danish kingdom, and the Lutheran Reformation saw the power of the crown grow dramatically, primarily at the expense of the church, obviously, which had been such an important power player in the Middle Ages. Before the Reformation, the crown had owned about 15-20% to of all the arable land in Denmark, but afterward, it controlled almost half. A similar development can be seen in Norway and Iceland, and in that way, the Reformation was not only a momentous religious change, but also a dramatic centralization of power, where the crown secured a dominating position for itself in a way it had never had before. Overseas, this change was even more dramatic. In Norway, not only did the crown confiscate all the church lands, but, as we've seen before, the Council of the Realm was abolished, introducing Danish rule instead. Christian III also made Norway a hereditary kingdom in union with Denmark, meaning that from now on, whoever would be king of Denmark would also automatically be king of Norway, whatever the Norwegians thought about it. Similarly, in Iceland, all church lands became crown lands, and the economic and political ties to Denmark were also gradually strengthened. In 1564, the Althing introduced a new set of laws, called Storidomur, which established new and harsher punishments for various unwanted behaviours considered immoral, mostly of a sexual nature, such as having children out of wedlock. By placing the power to collect fines and carry out the punishments stipulated in the new laws in the hands of the representatives of the Danish crown, more power passed from the Icelanders themselves to Denmark. This trend would only grow in the years to come, and in 1602 a trade monopoly was introduced, forcing the Icelanders to sell their goods exclusively to Danish merchants, who were only allowed to sail to Iceland from Denmark. This served to cut off previous long-established commercial ties between Iceland and both the Hanseatic League 
and the city of Bergen in Norway, which had gradually transformed from an international commercial hub in an independent Norway to a regional centre in a Danish backwater. This new and stronger position held by the Danish crown meant more resources and greater ability to involve itself in affairs beyond its borders. We'll see more of that in future episodes, but next time we'll return to Sweden to see what Gustav Vasa has been up to since he became king. But before we finish today, I'd like to tie up some loose ends regarding Christian II. First of all, a correction. Morten from Denmark has pointed out that I overstated Christian II's carefulness with regards to Lutheranism. Just like his wife, Christian became too vocal about his support for Martin Luther and ran into trouble with his Habsburg in-laws because of it. He even converted for a short while, but he did revert to Catholicism again in order to get the Holy Roman Emperor's support for his attempt at reclaiming Denmark in 1532. So thank you for pointing that out, Morton. I've also received a question about ex-King Christian. Sean in Florida asks what happened to Christian II after the Count's feud had failed. Was he executed? If not, why was he allowed to live? Wasn't the new king worried he'd try to get his crown back for a third time? The answer to the first question is easy. No, he wasn't executed. At the time of the Count's feud, the ex-king, for whom Count Christopher was fighting, was staying at Sönderborg Castle in southern Jutland. And even though he was kept under tighter control than before and wasn't allowed to be out and about as he had in the past, he was not executed. Which, let's be honest, is most likely the first thing Christian II would have done himself if the roles had been reversed. And the tighter control was also temporary. When things calmed down and Christian III was safely installed as King of Denmark, ex-King Christian II was allowed to return to his old habits again. We even have letters from his warden to King Christian III complaining about how the royal prisoner wasn't following the rules, not letting his guard know in advance when he was out riding, staying out in the town overnight and that sort of thing. Apparently, it was hard work to keep track of him, but, the warden noted, he was also so nice and sociable that the warden hesitated to clamp down hard on this behavior. In 1549, he was almost 70 years old and had been a prisoner for 17 years. Then, ex-King Christian was moved from Sönderborg Castle. The reason for the move wasn't connected directly to the prisoner, though. Instead, the castle was in dire need of some remodeling because it was run down and unfashionable. Christian's new home was Kalenborg Castle in northwest Zealand. At the time, it was one of the strongest castles in Scandinavia, and you may remember hearing about it before, because it was here the Danish Council of the Realm had wanted to move the royal treasury ahead of Christian II's ascension to the throne. In hindsight, that wasn't such a bad idea, since he had taken a big chunk of it with him when he went into exile. Anyway, here the imprisoned ex-king lived for comfortably with a court consisting of about 80 people, including about a dozen noblemen who were tasked with keeping him company. Here he also had even more freedom of movement, and he could hunt and fish freely, probably because no one thought of him as a threat anymore. Not only was he an old man, but his only son and heir, John, had died when he was still a child, the same year Christian had made his move against Norway, so he had no direct descendants who could claim the throne if he managed to take it back somehow. When Christian eventually died in January 1559, he had managed to outlive not only Frederick I, but also Christian III by three weeks. When he finally kicked the bucket, he had been a prisoner for a quarter of a century a third of his life, never convicted of any crime, never even tried for anything. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. 
If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Hovamol, accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.